0: Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter, chapter 2? 1 Peter, chapter 2. While you're finding your place, let me say a few words by way of introduction. Tonight, I want to pick up on a theme that we began with this morning. Uh, And what I want to do is, one, uh, show that Peter learned his lesson, but also show how Peter teaches us uh, to learn the lesson that he learned in Matthew 16. And that lesson, uh, to understand it, we need to understand the importance of the mind in the Christian life. And when I talk about the mind in the Christian life, I'm not speaking about our intellect. I'm not speaking about having a great deal of knowledge or uh, simply being intelligent or very learned. But rather, I'm speaking about the way in which we think about life, about Christ, about our relationship to God, and so on and so forth. And you'll remember in Matthew 16, verse 23, when Jesus rebuked Peter, he said, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We see very similar instructions frequently throughout the scriptures. For example, you don't need to turn there, but in Philippians chapter 2, the apostle Paul as he instructs the Philippians to live a life of humility, uses similar language, addressing the importance of the mind. And so in verse 3 of chapter 2, Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And again in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That word humility could be Uh, very literally translated as a humble mind or a lowly mind. So Paul is not speaking about being very smart, but rather a kind of mindset that we must adopt that can be characterized as lowliness of mind and as the mind of Christ. Again, you'll remember when Isaiah 52 and 53 were read this morning, how that suffering servant song began with these words, Behold, my servant who... Acts wisely. He in in going to the cross, in bearing the suffering, um, in bearing the sin of of uh, of all who would believe in him. He acts wisely. He acts in a way that is consistent with biblical wisdom. You see, and so then when we come to First Peter, we see that Peter emphasizes the importance of the mind in the Christian life. In verse thirteen of chapter one, he says. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, in chapter 4, verse 7, ver- chapter 5, verse 8, Peter calls on these Christians to have sober minds, saying, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your Excuse me, for the sake of your prayers. And again, in chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So Peter is clearly very focused on the importance of the mind in the Christian life. And he uses that same language that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 2. For instance, in chapter 3, verse 6, Excuse me. In chapter three, verse eight, he says, "Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind." That's that same word, humility, lo- lo- a lowly mind. And so, Paul, like Peter, and, uh, and like Peter, encourages us to have a lowly mind. And Peter takes up that same language here in this first epistle that he has written. We must have a humble mind, and this is rooted in biblical wisdom. In other words, to be wise, according to the scripture, is to adopt a lowly mind. So what I want you to understand tonight is that if we hope to live the Christian life, as we heard Jesus call us this morning, if we hope to live that life of humility, of courage, of service, of faithful endurance, then we must address the issue of the mind. How we think about ourselves. How we think about others. And how we think about ourselves in relation to God. We must think, think rightly about His purposes. We must think rightly about ourselves in relation to His purposes. And so if you found your place, would you follow along me with me as I begin to read? In First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, and I will read to the end of the chapter. that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight and we ask for your wisdom that you would impart it to us by your Spirit. Send your Spirit among us that he would illumine our minds, cause us to understand your word, cause us to receive it, in our hearts, that we might believe it, cherish it, and obey it with all faithfulness. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I made the case, I made the argument that learning to live the Christian life begins with a change in our mindset, the way in which we think about ourselves in relation to the purposes of God. But I want to also acknowledge that it's very difficult to adopt a lowly mind. It is very difficult to have a humble mind, as Peter has encouraged us to do. And if we understand what Peter is writing in the context of his own situation, we'll see how difficult that really is. For in verse 13, he says to these Christians to whom he's writing, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors, As sent by him to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. And again, in verse 18, he writes specifically to slaves, to servants. He says to them, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And if we think about how we relate to human government, perhaps we can begin to appreciate how difficult it would be for these Christians, just as it's difficult for us to obey the Word of God. You see, they lived at a time when they faced intense persecution. Peter wrote this letter round about 62 AD. Two years from then, Nero would begin to persecute the Christians in very intense ways. He blamed them for burning the city of Rome, And he would kill many, many Christians. And Peter is aware of this. He doesn't know exactly. I'm not saying he knows exactly what's going to happen. But he knows that trials and suffering are coming. And he says to this church in this letter that there's a fiery trial that is about to come upon them. In fact, it's very likely that Peter was to be martyred during that persecution under Nero. And yet, in that context, under a wicked pagan king, He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Peter is instructing Christians in his context to be subject to an emperor who is about to put many of them to death. It's a very difficult thing that he's asking them to do, but it requires them to adopt a different Frame of mind it requires them to think about their lives in a different way than we are accustomed to thinking not to value their lives as the most important thing the most valuable thing but rather to value faithfulness to God as the most important thing in their life and again we see that in what he says to servants to slaves calling them to be submissive to their masters it's not as if Peter is endorsing the practice of slavery but we must understand that at that time in the world it was unthinkable that this institution of slavery was ever to go away the church was very small relative to the uh, Roman Empire and to the society around them they weren't engaging in a political movement to abolish slavery but rather they were engaging in an evangelistic movement to call people out of slavery to sin So that they might be free, truly free from the thing that most enslaves us, our sin. And so Peter could put aside the question of whether or not slavery was just or unjust. He acknowledges in this text that in some cases, masters are unjust. In some cases, masters are cruel. And we should take that and also consider the same thing with respect to government. In many cases, governments are unjust. In many cases, governments do mistreat their people. And yet, God calls us to be subject to them, just as He calls servants in this particular context to be subject to their masters. Now, none of us are slaves here, but we can certainly apply what we read here to uh, any number of situations we might face in life. We have a boss who's unjust, who's cruel. We're still to honor that person. We're still to be subject to him. It doesn't mean he can compel us to do something that's wrong, nor the government. It doesn't mean the government can make us defy the Lord, for we serve the Lord as our ultimate sovereign. He's the one ultimately in control, and if he commands us to do something, it's very clear from the book of Acts that Peter understands he must not obey, for on multiple occasions he refused to obey human governors, human institutions, when they commanded him to defy the will of the Lord. But in other cases where, God has, uh, where there's no clear conflict between something God has said, Peter says that we're to endure that kind of injustice. And I, I simply want to acknowledge how difficult this is. Our natural inclination is to fight back. We are Americans, after all. Our forefathers, what did they do when they suffered injustice? They fought back. They started a revolution. They decided to found a new country. We are grateful for the result of that. But here Peter is calling us to adopt a different kind of mindset. Not one that says that the most important thing we can do is act with revolutionary fervor to overthrow governments or to free ourselves from servitude to others. But rather to willingly endure these kinds of things. It's very difficult. And yet, we can do it. We can obey the Lord if we change the way we think about ourselves. Because the will of God is different from ours. We must acknowledge that God has purposes that are greater than ours. God has purposes that we don't always understand. And He ordains that His people should sometimes suffer for his glory, and for our good. Notice how many times in this text, Peter refers to the Lord and his will as the reason for his encouragements and the reason for his instructions. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. He says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. says live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil but living as servants of God that is as slaves of God he says honor everyone love the brotherhood but fear God and honor the Emperor He says again for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly and again this is a gracious thing in the sight of God and finally, he says to us, to this you have been called. In all of these statements, he is showing it very, very clearly that the way in which we can obey what God tells us to do in this passage is by remembering that he is sovereign and his purposes are good and they are perfect. And he sometimes ordains that his people should suffer injustice so that he might be glorified and we might ultimately be blessed through it. How can we learn to do this? How can we learn to consider the purposes of God then? One way is by considering the examples of people who have gone before us. You see, God has called us to be Christians, to be followers of Christ, but we're not the first to do this. And so we ought to look to those who have gone before us in this race of faith, and we ought to consider the outcome of their faith as the author of Hebrews tells us. We have to consider the outcome of their faith and follow their examples. Why is it important to consider past examples like this? Well, one reason is that the examples reveal patterns. As we consider examples across the pages of Scripture, we start to see that God has a consistent way of acting, and we learn to trust His purposes. They also give us perspective, because when we suffer injustice... When we are mistreated at work or in society or in our neighborhood or simply by our government, we, can, we cannot always see the purposes of God. We can't always understand where this is going or how this could result in something good, but we can look back to those who have run the race before us, and we can see that God worked all things out for the good of those who love them, loves him, in their lives. So think, for example, of Joseph in the book of Genesis and the suffering he endured at the hands of his brothers who sold him into slavery. And then when he was in slavery, he was falsely accused by his master's wife. And he was imprisoned for 12 years. And then when he saw an opportunity to send a message to Pharaoh to seek release, the baker and, and the... Um, and the cupbearer to the the pharaoh they, they had dreams and he interpreted them and said tell pharaoh about me he was forgotten and he toiled away in prison some more and then finally pharaoh had a dream and god raised up joseph and exalted him to the number two in the land of egypt and what did he say then when finally his brothers stood before him what did he say what you did you meant for evil but god meant it for good. God worked this out for, the good, for good. For what good? For the salvation of many people. Salvation of the Egyptians. Salvation of his brothers. They persecuted him and sold him into slavery. And by doing that, they were saved. It's amazing to consider when we think about Joseph's life. Many, many years suffering and toiling and yet God had a purpose in it. God was working through it so that he would be glorified and his people would be blessed and would be saved from a great famine. So we look at examples like Joseph. We look at examples like David, who suffered at the hands of Saul, who suffered at the hands of his son Absalom, and yet persevered, and yet refused to disobey the command of the Lord. He would not strike down Saul, though he had many opportunities, because he refused to raise his hand Against the king who was anointed by God. He trusted the Lord and he endured suffering. And ultimately, God raised him up and established him and made an eternal covenant with David. We think of Daniel and his friends who were thrown into a fiery furnace and Daniel into the lion's den. And yet, what did God do through it all? He glorified his name, he blessed his people, he brought salvation, and he showed that his purposes are good. And that his ways are perfect, but his ways are not our ways. We can also consider examples closer to our own time. We might even look to the apostles. Peter and Paul, for instance, they write these words, but they also fulfilled what they said. Both Peter and Paul would go to their death through martyrdom. Shortly after, Peter finishes finishes this letter. And so they weren't simply writing vain words or they weren't simply giving advice that they weren't willing to keep. And they found the good reward because they trusted the Lord even unto death. And God proved good. And so we consider these examples and we learn from them. And yet, they were only following or prefiguring in the case of the Old Testament saints the chief example that's set before us the example that Peter looks to in this passage, the example of Christ. So look at what Peter says in verse 21 about Christ and about how we ought to imitate him. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. There are three negatives, three things that Jesus did not do. He did not sin in anything as he was persecuted, as he was scourged and whipped and beaten and shamed by the high priests, and by the soldiers, when Pilate stood face to face with Jesus and said, I have power over you, Jesus did not threaten in return. He did speak the truth to Pilate, but he didn't threaten him. He didn't revile those who beat him and who spit upon him and mocked him. Why didn't he do those things? Why didn't he call down angels from heaven to save him? punish those who were persecuting him because he knew the will of the lord as we read this morning in isaiah 53 it was the will of the lord to crush him that he would be one like a sheep led to its slaughter like a sheep that is silent before its shears and jesus believed every word that god had spoken and knew that he had to do everything that god had said of him even refusing to utter threats even refusing to revile in return, even refusing to sin in any way when he was threatened. And he calls us to that same kind of life, to imitate him in this. But when I think of myself, when I'm insulted, I want to snap back with an insult. When I'm mocked, I want to respond defensively or revile those who mock me. It's my natural inclination to sin when I'm sinned against. I'm not like Christ as I ought to be. And I think that many of you can sense the same, kind of, uh, the same kind of feeling. And yet, again and again, Christ calls us to turn again and consider His example and follow Him. And we do that by considering the purposes of God. Just as... Christ considered the purposes of God knowing that what he was called to do when he endured suffering and when he was reviled and when he suffered threats, that ultimately what he was doing was only because God willed it so that many would be accounted righteous through his righteousness so that through faith in him many might be saved. He considered the purposes of God and recognized that even though What was happening in that moment was deeply wrong. The creator of the universe, the one through whom all things was made, was mocked by his creatures, and yet he endured it in order to save us. That's the example he's set for us. And Peter says, consider his example. He did not do these things. Because he did this one thing, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He remembered that the God of the universe who is sovereign over all things, He is just. And no amount of human injustice can stop Him from doing justice. Even if I am laid in the grave, even if I am killed for my faith, even if I am unjustly persecuted, that will not prevent God from being just. For there is a resurrection. There is eternal life. There is a recompense For every person. Because God is not bound by death and death is not the end for him. He can raise to life and he can raise to judgment as he wills and when he will. We can trust that the one who judges justly will indeed bring about justice in the end. And that's why we can obey what Peter is telling us to do. By submitting to those who are in authority over us. Even though it's very difficult even though it's very hard. We must consider the examples of those who've gone before us. We must consider the purposes of God. Most importantly, we must consider the example of Christ. Let's dwell once more for a moment on the things that Christ accomplished by His example as we consider what He did for us. Here, Peter goes on and he says, He himself, in verse 24... He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What Peter is doing here is taking the language of that passage from Isaiah that we read this morning. He's taking the language of Isaiah 53 and he's weaving it into this passage. There's a quote here and a quote there to describe what Jesus did. He bore our sins. We were straying like sheep, but now we've returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. All of these ideas, all of these concepts, many of these words are drawn directly from Isaiah 53. In other words... Peter is looking back to this prophecy and saying that's what Christ did. And in that way, he's showing that Christ's actions were simply what Scripture said he would do. That is, he obeyed the word of God when he suffered these injustices. He knew he had to do those things, and by doing them, he saved us. He bore our sins. You cannot divorce the idea of the example of the cross from the atoning work of Christ on the cross. There are many debates and many arguments about the meaning of the cross. What did Christ accomplish for us? And there are some who say, well, he atoned for sin, and then some who say, no, 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 it's just an example. But here we see very clearly in 1 Peter that those two things are intimately connected. In other words, the reason why we can follow his example is because he was that what he did in obeying the Lord was effective. It wasn't just for show. It really accomplished something. And so we can trust that whatever we might go through, whatever injustices we might suffer, even though we don't know exactly what it's accomplishing, we can trust that God will also work out His good purposes through those things in us and through us and for us. And ultimately to his glory, because he did it through his son. It really his his example was an example because he really accomplished our salvation. You see, it's not just for show. Now, in closing, I want to tell you a little bit of history about the people who received this letter. Because I want you to see that they received this message and they put it into practice. And from that history, we can see that Peter's words proved true. You see, in the very beginning of 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, we read, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, in the year 112 A.D., there was a man named Pliny, who was the governor of Pontus and Bithynia and pliny wrote a series of letters to the emperor in rome an emperor named trajan and one of those letters he writes for counsel about how to deal with christians in that letter he explains to trajan what he's been doing essentially he's been giving them a chance to recant to deny their faith and so he called in people who had been accused of being christians and he would say well if you offer a little incense and a little offering to the emperor then I will let you go free. But if you won't, then I'll ask you if you're a Christian three times. And if you say that you are a Christian three times, then you must die. And he was putting people to death because they wouldn't offer incense. They wouldn't sacrifice to the emperor. And because they refused to deny their relationship to Christ. And yet they went to their death willingly, refusing to deny Christ. But what Trajan wrote, to, to, uh, excuse me, what, um, in, what Pliny wrote to Trajan, he acknowledged that these people were doing nothing wrong. He just said they were stubborn because they refused to worship the emperor. They had been accused falsely of all kinds of wicked and sordid practices by other people in their midst, and mainly it was because they, the businesses were suffering. They, they weren't buying bulls to sacrifice to pagan gods. And so businessmen were angry that they weren't selling their bulls. So they accused them of being Christians to get them killed in order to try to get them to buy more of these bulls. And in his letter, Pliny notes that they really weren't doing anything wrong and unwittingly, he shows their faith. For many generations have looked back and said, look at the Christians of this era. Not 50 years after Peter wrote this letter, they put into practice the things that... Peter said for them to do and their testimony their willingness to go to death even for the name of Christ is a testimony that continues to this day to show what God can accomplish through his people if they will trust him and they will obey him and they indeed will see their reward they have received it and they will receive it more fully when Christ returns and they are raised from the dead you see how the purposes, purposes of God are worked out even when we can't see it. They had no idea these letters were being written. And yet, now, that governor, and that emperor, unwittingly testified to the faithfulness of those who follow Christ. And it encourages us to follow their example, even as we follow the example of Paul and of Peter and of many Old Testament patriarchs, but ultimately following the example of Christ who went before us unto death, and who was raised before us, we too can trust that we surely will be raised as well. And on that day, we'll enter into the kingdom of our Lord, and there, there will never be injustice again, but only righteousness forever, never more. And so, let us adopt this kind of mind, a lowly mind that is willing to persevere in the face of suffering, that is willing to be humble, And to consider the needs of others. And to serve others before ourselves. Knowing that God's purposes are perfect. And they are sure. and He will accomplish all that he wills to do. For our good and for his glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. And we thank you that you are indeed. God of steadfast love and faithfulness your purposes are perfect and sure, and that we can trust that whatever comes our way, we know that you're in control of all things. And that though others might act wickedly toward us, we know that you being in control are working it all out for our good, for your glory. Help us to trust that, Lord. Help us to believe. Help us to honor you and to act always in a way that's mindful of you even when it's difficult, even when it's hard, even when it requires us to humble ourselves, and even when other people will look at us and mock us for being so submissive and for adopting such a lowly mind. For we know that that pleases you when we trust that you will be the one who exalts us in your time. Make us, O Lord, to trust you as Christ, our Lord, our chief example, trusted you in all things.